This is a Federal News Network podcast. The IRS, still struggling with a backlog of tax returns, is coming up with a few options to rev things up, like surge teams of extra employees to work in its processing centers, taking on that backlog of paper tax returns and correspondence. The IRS is also canceling plans to close a tax processing center following the advice of agency overseers. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has all of the latest on this. And Jory, how is the IRS doing at this point? And it's still sort of early in the filing season. Still early, and the IRS is really throwing everything they've got at this, but it's still a challenge by any measure. The phone lines are still tied up, the mailroom's still clogged up, and people are still waiting for their tax refunds. Uh, Really what the IRS is particularly getting killed on here is its backlog of paperwork. You know, this is paper tax returns, this is correspondence that is coming into the mailrooms and is taking a while to get opened, scanned and processed and responded to. Um, And it's interesting because IRS Commissioner Chuck Reddick has pleaded with taxpayers repeatedly to make sure that they file electronically if they're able to do so. And By and large, people are. Last year, the IRS received 170 million individual tax returns, and 90% of them were filed electronically. But it's that final 10% that is really the thorny issue here. People who file on paper are waiting up to 10 months to get their returns processed. Wow. And yeah, yeah. And to give you a sense of how we got in this mess in the first place, national taxpayer advocate Aaron Collins recently told the Senate Finance Committee that it's kind of this this toxic brew of office closures from the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, inadequate staffing, which has been a longstanding issue, antiquated IT, and a need to shift work around and workers around uh, during COVID-19 to administer new relief programs. And so Collins says that, you know, IRS workload and budget issues have been a persistent challenge, but now more than ever, there's this unprecedented imbalance between the workload and its resources. During the past 18 months, the inventory backlog has continued to snowball. We need to put the processing backlog behind us and get the IRS out of the hole it finds itself in and get the IRS to a stable and healthy condition so it can perform its core mission. That's right. That shows the problem with percentages. As you point out, 90% of Returns were electronic, terrific, but at the federal government scale and the entire United States scale, 10% still is a big, giant number, as you point out, 17 million tax returns, and a return is 10, 20, 30, it'd be lots of paper, and so that's a lot of documents lying around to process. And, Jory, what is the IRS doing to staff up then to actually, as she says, finish the backlog and get out of that hole? The IRS, I feel, is always hiring, but to deal with its problems for the here and now, it's trying to deal with the workforce it already has. The IRS recently stood up an inventory surge team of 1,200 employees uh, reassigned to work on the front lines, essentially, of dealing with amended tax returns, responding to correspondence. And this is working well. This is moving the needle in some regards. But the agency is now putting together a second team of employees to deal with this workload. Also, the agency is issuing a lot of overtime with its workforce to you know, have enough manpower to deal with all of this. But Jessica Lucas-Judy, the director of strategic issues at the Government Accountability Office, also told the Senate committee that 
This is really kind of putting a bandaid on the problem in that sooner or later, hopefully sooner, the IRS needs to have a strategic workforce plan to really deal with this issue. We recognize overtime is a necessary tool to help manage unexpected surges in workload, but it's not sustainable to rely primarily on overtime to offset complex human capital challenges, such as reduced staffing levels and attrition. And that's Jessica Lucas-Judy, the Director for Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And the we can't ever have a conversation about the problems of the IRS and the processing issues without talking about not only the aging and maybe too small workforce, but the aging IT. And this comes up again and again, doesn't it? Yeah, it's uh, really no secret that the IRS has some of the most antiquated IT in the federal government. A lot of it's running on COBOL, which I don't think any university is really teaching its new graduates about COBOL these days. And it has about 60 legacy systems that it would love to gradually replace at some point. But these systems don't really talk to one another. And when it comes to taxpayer service, the agency, you know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. If you are a taxpayer calling and asking for help, the agency doesn't have a 360 degree view of your history calling about these problems and how they've gotten resolved. And so it's it's really exacerbated the problem in a lot of regards. The IRS has repeatedly called on Congress to authorize multi-year funding to help jumpstart its IT modernization efforts. Lawmakers have not yet fulfilled that request, though, so that is a a persistent challenge there. Meanwhile, the Senate Finance Committee Chairman Ron Wyden, he said for another issue here is just the equipment the agency has to physically open and scan the mail that it gets in here. And he was saying that is a root cro- a root cause for some of the paper challenges we're seeing. The IRS gets a lot of mail, and some of it includes physical checks sent by taxpayers. The problem is the machines that scan and sort the mail are just way out of date and unable to properly handle the envelopes that contain checks. This cost the taxpayer more than $56 million in 2021 alone because the IRS was unable to open the right envelopes and then process the payments in time. I confess I haven't heard that one. We know that they have the old software systems, although they do run on modern hardware because they have to replace the hardware from time to time. But envelope opening, envelope opening machines, that's, <laughs> that's a new one. All right. And so... That gets to the idea of the processing centers, of which the IRS used to have a big network nationwide, Jory, and they were going to close one of them, but now they're not. Is that because of all of this backlog? It is. Yeah, the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, or TIGDA, had a recent report on this issue. It recommended that the IRS really wasn't doing itself any favors by planning to close the site in in Austin, Texas. This site was planned to be closed in September of 2024, so nothing immediate here, but really a recognition that given its current state of struggling with a paper workload, that this is going to be a challenge for years to come here. And what's interesting is that the IRS management initially didn't rec- didn't agree with this recommendation from TIGDA. They said that they were still going to proceed with it, but I guess just given the recent headlines about the IRS struggling with its paper tax return. It more recently reversed course and said it's going to keep the Austin site open. 
and this is part of a, a long-standing plan here. The IRS, since 2016, has had an idea of consolidating all of this paper processing work from five sites down to two, and it closed a site last year in Fresno, California. So the other two facilities here that will remain open and will will have no plans to close, those are located in Ogden, Utah, and Kansas City, Missouri. Seems like they should get together with the Postal Service and kind of consolidate processing centers. It's all opening envelopes in some way or coming in and going out, but I guess that's a pipe dream. And while we have you, Jory, what's the latest on that facial recognition controversy that IRS had? They canceled an arrangement with a contractor that offers login with facial recognition. Yeah, this is just the saga that never ends here. Uh, The latest that we've seen from the IRS is that taxpayers who are looking to create an online account and access a lot of self-help tools online now are able to set that account up through a live virtual interview with one of the vendors in play here, ID Me. This is for a little bit of recap. This is because the IRS got pushback from Congress and the public for initially having a facial recognition only option of getting their identity verified to set up those online accounts. That's not to say that there's no way to do the facial recognition, but it's entirely optional now. Taxpayers can now opt into having that done uh, entirely by themselves. There's no need to get on like a Zoom call with a vendor if they choose to. Um, But in that case, that does rely on facial recognition. All of this is a short-term solution, though, because the IRS says after this year's filing season, it's going to work with the General Services Administration to roll out login.gov as its identity verification as its identity authentication tool uh, from there on out. All right. And maybe someday login.gov will have facial, but right now it's pretty much just the uh, old-fashioned types of two-factor. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out all of his IRS coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing 
we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly 
gay Black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.